Talking Theater with Sir Hallworth Felix Doe Smooth, the only podcast on earth about the theater. All the world's a stage, and all the men and the women are merely players. They have exits, and they have entrances, and one man with his parts plays many times. His act being several ages. Good day. My name is Holworth Felix Tersmooth, and I'm the lucky actor who will be taking you through this series, Talking Theatre, the only podcast on earth about the theatre. Through this series, we're going to be delving into a world which, it's fair to say, mystifies most. I mean... If I ate a toffee apple for every time somebody asked me how I learnt all those lines, or how I remembered where to stand, or how I can bear the sound of a stupid director's voice, well, listener, I'd probably be dead. Dead from complications from type 2 diabetes, no doubt. (laughs) They are sugary, those apples. But back to the matter at hand. In talking theatre, we'll cover it all. Backstage, side stage, front stage, upstage, downstage, in stage, under stage, over stage, around the backstage, behind the bin stage, and so many more. I, of course, will be doing my best to guide you using my own personal experience as the go-to actor of stage and screen for the last hundred years or so. And might I say now? It is a privilege to be coming in your ears. Mm, mm, mm. Before we delve into beginnings, it's probably wise of me to make the distinction between a a theatre actor and other types of actors, especially for those listening who perhaps have never experienced the theatre before or are just a little bit dim. It takes a certain type of person to be a theatre actor or a that. It's very much reserved for the type of people who like putting in an enormous amount of work with absolutely nothing to show for it. I mean, a theatre actor may walk down the street and 99% of people won't look at him twice. It is, in many respects, a sacrificial occupation, like a, I don't know, a lonely farmer out in the wilderness of the barren English moors tending to his duties without the necessity for the celebrity life, without the necessity, and this is often the case for Thactors, for friends of any sort. But even a shepherd has his lambs, even a farrier has his mares, even a chicken farmer has his cocks. The Thactor really is a desperate creature, enslaved to his profession with almost nothing to show for it. It's true, one enjoys much esteem within the industry itself with those sad types that frequent the theatre too often, you know the ones. Nevertheless, off the stage, one is practically invisible. For instance, if somebody were to smile at a Thactor on the bus, it's less likely to be from recognising them and appreciating their work, wanting to thank them, and more likely because a ruffian is doing rabbit ears behind their back, spitting chewing gum in the hair or pissing up their back. <laughs> oh, little bastards. Whatever the weather, 
The Thactor is content with being a nobody off stage. They are content with nothing in their lives, and their pay reflects that. I mean, did, 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 did you know that a Thactor's yearly wage, or yage, is 80% less than 90% of a movie actor's, or mactor's? I, I mean, I bet none of you little beetroots out there knew that one, did you? And you can forget luxurious trailers, or chalets for their downtime. No, a Thacta looks forward to a rat-infested dressing room twenty feet under the sod. Let there be no question, my turnips. We suffer. For the art. We suffer. Of all the industries, of all the worlds, in all the universes, we are truly the ones that suffer. But that's the way we like it. We wouldn't have it any other way, my carrots. It's for the art. Of course, in my experience, rats are extremely intelligent creatures and can make for pleasant houseguests. I've been known to feed them from time to time, camembert and port mostly. And I even once enjoyed an interval cigar with a rat when I was giving my sorin in the seagull in Swansea. <laughs> oh, but how he did but take one puff, turn green, and die right in front of me. Still, it was nice to share a Cuban cigar with a fellow earth-dweller, and regardless of his twisted expression, I felt deep down he enjoyed it as much as I did. Incidentally, I don't know what the sight of Reginald's death did to me on that fateful night, fateful for him, but it must have been something, as on that particular evening I gave the performance of Macaria. It ended, as so many of those special nights do, and as I stepped from my fiftieth curtain call in a haze of transcendental amazement, the entire company was stood aghast. There I was, agape. It seems, post-Reginald's death, I'd made a few changes before stepping on for the second act. Instead of my tired cream jacket, I'd donned a leather poncho, my usual slick-back parting replaced with scotch-red hair dye, and instead of trousers, well... Let's just say, in the final scene, I could feel the audience's breath all over my treasures. I also orgasmed on Archidinus' soliloquy, but to be fair, that was a fairly common occurrence. Isn't Francis Barber wonderful? It was a magical evening, and my truly memorable performance garnered many awards. Speaking of awards, it's always best the Thacter doesn't get their hopes up too high. It's lovely to have them, don't get me wrong, but unlike movie awards or charity awards or pretty much any other type of award you can imagine that actually matters, theatre awards tend only to be valued by the recipient and are quickly forgotten. The general rule of thumbs is American TV Award, that's very kind, thank you, American Movie Award, I can't believe it, thank you so much, this is wonderful, British TV or Film Award, what a lovely gesture, or theatre awards, who are you, and what are you doing in my house? Put simpler even, all awards except theatre ones, good, all theatre ones, bad, or unimportant. In terms of their look, awards, I'm afraid to say, are rather like egos and appendages. Size does matter. And theatre awards, <laughs> tiny horrible things that would make Ronnie Corbett's hands look so gigantic one might assume he suffered from elephantitis. And that's the truth. Beyond size, the awards also differ in their durability. Whereas the beautiful Oscar is made from gold-plated precious metal, 
The Tony Award, America's highest theatrical trinket, is little more than a well-sculpted cucumber wrapped in tin foil. I mean, I'm proud to say, don't get me wrong, I've had the pleasure of eating several of my theatrical awards over the years, and a good meal they make. Something movie matriarch Melly Streep could never attest. The best Streep can do with her myriad of large and heavy, cumbersome movie awards is hold a lot of doors open in what is probably a very large, drafty, and emotionally empty house that she haunts. Oscars make for wonderful doorstops, don't get me wrong, but if you stub the toe, you will bleed the foot substantially. On Streep! I've always found her such a cold fish. Unlike her warm, bubbly, and generous television persona, her real-life character leaves a lot more to be desired. In a BBC Green Room, for instance, before appearing on The Graham Norton Show, I saw Street put not one, but as many as two mini-burger sliders into her handbag before filming commenced. And nobody mentioned it, but they did have to cut several times to mop up the grease puddles that were seeping out onto the set. Every time we cut and the moppers rushed on, Streep feigned confusion, a very good performance, pretended to text her agent. I mean, I often need meat, but for God's sake, Melly, wrap your beef first. When it comes to awards, though, Meryl has the monopoly. Incidentally, she also has a monopoly on nominations. Put next to each other, though, and you'll see she has one further monopoly. Most losses. Sorry, Melly, but the facts are facts. You're listening to Talking Theatre with Sir Holwood Felix Stowe-Smooth, the only podcast on earth about the theatre. Next up, we'll delve into the title of this first episode, Beginnings. How does an actor begin? How do theatres begin? Can you pick up a lasagna on the way home? No, that's... Well, my, my partner's left me a note on the script. Disregard the last one, old friends. Incidentally, I can pick up the lasagna. Let's start at the very beginning, all together now. It's a great place to start. Julia Andrews. Wonderful. I suppose since I've been talking about the actor already in my wonderful introduction, it would be apt to start the real business by trying to understand what actors begin their lives, and how and why that beginning is so important to understand. We may not get to that last bit. It's a bit much. I know from my experience, I'm sure it's true for most, that I began my journey as an actor in that big, soft, warm and bubbly pink theatre, the uterus. Sure, it wasn't possible for people to physically see the unusual performance I was giving in those formative months, mostly concentrating on growing, though the odd scan provided what I think is probably the first example of an NT live performance, and I'm certain that each and every thump to my mother's guts I gave live on the small black-and-white grainy screen, was awarded with thunderous applause from the sonographer and her assistant. I can't be sure of their sex, but like nurses, midwives, and prostitutes, they're usually females. This was my beginning. A very typical actor's beginning. It's tempting to give a full and frank and unordinarily graphic account of my birth or debut, its dramatic merit speaks for itself. According to The Guardian, my exit from the vagina was five stars. But I fear on this occasion we don't have the time. Let's just say it was rather like the Battle of Bosworth scene at the end of Shakespeare's Dicky Three, or for those out there with a taste for the more filmic of analogies, the thirty-minute battle for Helm's Deep in Lord of the Rings the Second. 
except in my mother's case the onslaught was near forty-two hours, and you thought you were long-winded, Mr. Jackson. Peter, not Michael. Other comparable films of note would be Look Who's Talking, Nine Months, Look Who's Talking 2, Jonia, Apocalypse Now, Look Who's Talking 3 and 4, Carrie, Look Who's Talking 5 through 7, The Evil Dead, and any other film I've missed that includes babies, birthing, medical persons, lots of blood, and or badly judged episiotomies. What a debut. Of course, beyond the minge, beginnings for young actors these days include a trip to the old stage finishing school for a measly 60,000 per annum. But in my day, better days, we would leave the confines of the vagina and move directly into repertory theatre after a period of about 18 years. And it was tough. Oh, boy, 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 was it tough. I mean, I joined Larry's rep company for the 53 complete works of Shakespeare season, and the schedule was tighter than lycra breeches on a character part's thighs. That season, we were up at 6.30am for breakfast and then into rehearsals for the Scottish play at 6.45. After an hour, it was out of the rehearsal room and onward. By 8am, we were into makeup and costume for the first performance of the day, which was the Danish play at 8.30am. Now... The Danish play, as you well know, is four hours, but in a rep day, you hardly have time, so we just take out every fifth line, and that shaved a good 40 off it. And we'd be curtained down, and trousers down, by 11.45am, ready for a bicky before afternoon rehearsal. Now, of course, a rep company must always have two to three hundred players under its belt at any one time, so naturally the afternoon rehearsal was a different play again, this time one of the Roman plays. By 12.45, it was spatulas down and back into costume and makeup for our matinee of the Veronian tragedy, which also came down blissfully early because one of our stage hands worked out a way to amalgamate all of the death scenes into one super scream scene at the end, shaving off a lovely 30. Well done, Sheila. Now, with Robin Jude down by 3.30, it was time for a bicky again, but then back into rehearsals for another hour. On this occasion, the French play, Hen 5. After an hour, it's back into costume, make up for the evening performance of the Greek Forest Fast, which was always an hour longer than written because Larry insisted on the forest being hand-built every night. Loopy Larry. So that was five hours. If you were lucky, you were home and in bed by 12am, stopping on the way home, of course, for the last rehearsal of the day of the Venetian tragedy, Otello, the Moor of Venice, whereby, of course, I would help Larry into and out of his extremely heavy makeup. It was a different time, chickens, I beg you. It sounds fun, doesn't it? Well, let me tell you this. It was fun, but it was hard. Very, very hard. Extremely hard. We, we loved it. We really did. We really, I mean, we, we got on with it. We, 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 we loved it. Truth be told, we loved it. Right. Oh, but it was hard. It was dre I mean, you must never forget how hard it was. And listen, we absolutely adored it. We wouldn't change it for the world. But it was hard. 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 And it was gruelling schedules like this that would bring the toughest of actors to breaking point. I recall seeing Judy Dench throw a chair out of the first floor of the Birmingham Rep. 
and a company manager told her she was down to play all the parts in King John at the Thursday Fogey matinee because the company was going for fish and chips for Ken's birthday. I mean, of course, we look back now on it and laugh, but it was hard. That was the repertory theatre. One day you're carrying a spear in Coriolanus, the next you're playing the entirety of Rom and Jew on your tod. I mean, these youngsters, you know, today, these young actors, they make me laugh. They begin their careers running around a room pretending to be fire and pandas. They don't know what they're doing, or indeed what they've missed by having the unfortunate luck to have been born after 1920. Whilst we're here, if you want to know more about why I hate drama schools, then you can catch it in a later episode which is devoted entirely to that subject. Let us simply close this particularly sour note by saying repertory theatre was hard, but by God it was better than everything that's being taught and produced in drama schools today. And that, I think we can agree, goes some way to settling all sides. Judy, by the way, was made to pay for the chair, which she did, to her credit, by direct debit. I've always liked Judy, and I find her industry nickname Rudy Wench unfair. Though she is selfish and tyrannical to work with, and by God she is, her talent shines through, and, and I mean, that's really what counts. It's not about the journey. It's not about the process. It's not about who you hurt or disregard or neglect or, in her case, hit on the way. It's about the performance the amount of awards you have, and whether people who don't know you at all like you. On that front, she ticks all the boxes. My best advice to young actors working with her would simply be to stay out of her way, especially if she's had a drink. Up next, we'll look at how theatres began. But first, a word from our sponsors. Scotch whiskey. Whiskey brewed in Scotland by Scottish people. Drink it and it'll take the roof off your mouth. Ooh, but it's smooth. So bloody smooth it goes down like Kim Kardashian in a leaked video. Smooth, you'll love it. Buy it. Buy it now. Scotch whiskey. Because everybody needs to go blind every now and again. Scotch whiskey. Scotch Whiskey are proud sponsors of Theatre Talk with Hallworth Felix Do Smooth, the only podcast about theatre. I remember talking to an old actor friend, Bertie Woodward, about the beginnings of theatre at an old Vic function for short actors in 1962, and he seemed to think that most theatres grew from the ground. As I recall, I, I laughed at such a suggestion, I mean, quite hard and right in his face. But he didn't move, though, and, and with no reaction, and all the colour draining from his face like his cheek had sprung a leak, I could tell in an instant his alcoholism really, really had kicked up a gear since his third divorce. There is a grain of truth in dear Bertie's mad ravings, in the sense that theatres are indeed in the ground for the best parts of their lives, and I was delighted to be able to save some face for him by making that known to the congregation in my eulogy at his funeral some weeks later. And what a funeral. As beautiful citations, some gorgeous singing from the mourners, and sustenance! I mean, you might expect it to be served in business class on any good commercial flyer. Yes, Bertie was given a real 
send-off. It wasn't the one he wanted, but the law forbids the pulling of cadavers by horses into the sea. Yeah, as dramatic a scene as it would have been, Bertie, it was fanciful. <laughs> I think even he knew that when he insisted on it two days before he died. I put it down to him mixing whiskey and morphine, but the district nurse informed me that that was fine and that she often mixed drugs and alcohol with no major side effects. So, Still, something was off there, and I felt it very keenly in my craw. A quick check-up on my craw by that same district nurse proved actually it was a hernia, and after another drink she gladly popped it back in for me. So, you know, all's well that ends well. Bertie's widow, meanwhile, met him halfway and had a horse-drawn carriage for the coffin with a cassette tape. Played the sounds of the sea, you know, birds, Enya, as he made his final journey. Incidentally, Bertie was a terrific actor. You know, the critics may have disagreed, but then they never saw his final performance as King Lear in the horse at Hounds Grimsby. Few did. Giving Lear thought that to what should do was such a part takes unbelievable strength, especially in the case of dear Bertie, who at three foot one was really up against it in the closing scene. I mean, to carry the dead body of his daughter Cordelia up the back stairs of the pub when the man needed special shoes just to be seen over a shop counter shows real commitment. Once he reached the stage, some 30 minutes later, the production finally closed at six hours and people rose to their feet to leave. Bertie, I salute you. I salute the horse and hounds too, who do a wonderful fish pie. Well, at least they did in 62. Back to the theatre! Look, I'm embarrassed to admit that in the ten-minute preparation I did for this ear lecture, I realised that I knew very little about the beginnings of the hallowed houses that have given themselves to my art and my life. And so, as remedy, I briskly called a merchant building company to inquire as to what might go into the very fabric of these magnificent beasts. An old copy of the yellow pages I usually sit on when I'm driving proved fruitful, and I, I put myself in touch with a rather gruff-sounding man called Grant, who told me very early on in our exchange that I should um, call him back in an hour because he has shit to do and can't be fucking around with some ponce who isn't bringing him any real fucking business. Now, as you can imagine, I was a little taken aback, but I suspected that I had a bit of a joker on my hands, and, and I pressed on in the knowledge he was, as they say, having me on. So I informed him I had, I had ten minutes until the recording, and I needed this information quite badly. So even if he could just give me the foundational knowledge, I'd have something concrete, pardon the pun, to give to my eager listeners. Or listeners. I also told him that were he to part with the expert knowledge, he'd get a full name check on the podcast, as would his company, who might just benefit from the publicity. In response, Grant um, broke wind down the phone from both his gobbox and his anus, and then very callously, and it must be said, told me in no uncertain terms, that he couldn't give a fuck. Sensing still he might be having a Josh and a Jape, I assured him that I found tradesmen like him very funny indeed, and that he had my full attention, and that now was indeed the time to acknowledge my acknowledgement of his talent, but to cut very quickly to the matter at hand, and tell me very simply how the theatres are built. And with that, Grant broke wind twice more, both rectal this time, 
and told me sharply to get fucked, bringing the curtain down on a rather tawdry interaction. Now, far be it for me to cast aspersions or put anyone with clear intelligence issues down, but it's interactions like this with the working classes, however brief, that make you understand why the Conservative Party continue to dominate politics in this country. And thank the great goodness that they do. A quick Google of Grant and his builders' merchants shows me that his company has been in quite serious financial decline for some time, and that he himself has been twice divorced and doesn't see his children. We may all take some solace in that. My first foray onto Google also proved fruitful for theatre beginnings, because it told me that whilst theatres range in size and shape, most beginners, all buildings do, and are made from brick and cement, with metal fixtures and fixings forming the bulk of the construction's foundations. I mean, to think, that is how theatres begin. Wowie, wo wowie, wo wo wowie, wowie. Well, that brings us rather neatly to the close of this first episode. I will, as always, look to the correspondence pile and our dear listeners' questions for the last few minutes because I know that so much of this industry is caring enough to pass it on and teach the next generation, or at the very least, appearing to do so. Today, we look to Fiona Bottleton from Cheltenham, who has got in touch with a very curious question. <laughs> Hello, Fiona. And she says, Dear Mr. Felix Smooth, Sir, it should be, but never mind. I'm a housewife, I'm sixty, and widowed with four lovely daughters. My last daughter has just left for university, and the nest is somewhat empty. I acted for some time at the beginning of my life and was somewhat successful, but left the profession early to bring up my children and serve my husband like a goodly wife. Now, after forty years, with the house paid, plenty of money in the bank, and the children and husband gone, I feel compelled to return to the profession where I was most happy. So I ask you, Holworth, do you think it's possible? In this industry, can one have a second beginning? Oh, 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 Fiona, 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 oh, Fiona, oh, Fiona, oh, Mrs. Bottleton from Cheltenham. What can I say to that? Firstly, thank you for your very kind letter and the beautiful pink perfumed paper it is written on. I mean, that sort of level of detail shows me how little you have in your life and how desperately you need affirmation from me. And maybe just to be noticed. Now, listen, eh, hey, Fiona, listen, congratulations on your achievement of, of raising five daughters, uh, first and foremost. We, we must highlight that. Um, and, and, of course, commiserations on losing your husband. It's a very careless thing to do. <laughs> no, well, death can be hard, but I mean, you don't say how he died, do you? Let's look on there. My producer's pointing to his notes. Oh, yes, there is. It says, um, it says a very aggressive... Glioblastoma. Ooh, well, uh, well, presumably some sort of explosion, possibly an industrial ac uh, accident. Uh, I don't know. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Well, Fiona, look, look, look. You have our thanks. You have our congratulations and our commiserations. Now, to your central question: Can can there, can there be a second beginning in the theatre for those who believe it is their primary purpose in life and who who gave that up sacrificially to bring up their children? Well, Fiona, you know you probably expected me to say this, but I would say no. In fact, I would go further. I would say it's almost impossible, and that you ought to stay away 
from a profession which, don't forget, you callously turned your back on without a second thought all those years ago. And you must never forget that. This industry of show is not something that you can simply cast asunder and then fish out on a whim when you feel sad because your children have fled the family home or your spouse has fled the breath of life. No. It's time to take some responsibility, dear Mrs. Bottledon, and live out your days with a quiet dignity and a stoic resolve. I would suggest taking the odd trip to your local theatre to keep the demons at bay. Perhaps even, I don't know, getting involved with the amateur dramatics though it sounds like there are enough dramatics being stirred up by you in that busy, busy, busy head of yours. <laughs> There's also bowls. No, 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 no. The door is closed on that chapter, Fiona. And should you try to open it, do be aware that I and the rest of the theatrical community will be ready and willing to use the full force of the law to keep it closed and to keep you out. I do hope that's clear. And so to you, Mrs. Bottledon. From a Cheltenham, I say, good day. Well, that's it for today. Join me, Sir Holworth Felix Dosmuth, next time when we'll be discussing that old staid adage, never work with children or animals or food. I'll be asking all the important questions like why a bunch of grapes can't be an understudy? Why hasn't a dog or a cat or a gibbon won an Oscar? And what in Hades' assholes has happened to Macaulay Culkin? You've been listening to Talking Theatre, the only podcast on earth about the theatre. And so until next time, to you I say, good day. <laughs>